السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته يا 3.40 p.m. on what's this freezing cold Wednesday morning boy boy oh boy oh boy the frost I got out of bed this morning by firing up my my uh, what, what, what did I use to get myself out of um, my blowtorch? I fired up my blowtorch this morning. Um, slowly melted the blankets around the edge of the bed. Then my wife and I, we booted off the, 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 the top duvet, which fell with a very solid clatter onto the ground. And uh, and uh, then we... Um, Yes, well, anyway, I'm sure many of you uh, experienced similar conditions this morning. Boy, around fudge time, it was freezing, freezing, freezing cold. And it looks as though it's set to continue. Oh, boy, it's like perfect weather for COVID. Like, this is what we need right now. It's as though... It's as though Britain has sent us its weather for the moment. It's, it really is terrible. Well, it's 3.41 p.m. on a lovely Wednesday afternoon. A very cold and crisp Wednesday afternoon here in Mzansi. Uh You're tuned into Marcus Hub Online Radio, and I'm your host, Anamin Templeton, and this is the Drive Time Show. Yes, this is the time when we drive everyone crazy. That's why it's called the Drive Time Show. I know people think it's because it's the time when people are going to be commuting back from work. No, 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 no. I know nothing about cars. I know nothing about cars. I basically know where the ignition is and um, to turn the wheel, basically. And um, if you want me to open the hood, well, you're going to first have to show me where the little lever is that you pull back so you can open up the, the hood. I'm calling it the hood like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an American the bonnet of the car. The bonnet of the car. I'm your host, Adamine Templeton. This is the Drive Time Show. The day of the day when we drive everyone crazy. Yeah, well, that's what it is. Uh, that's one of the specialities we have. It's due to the fact that I'm half Irish. It comes quite naturally to the Irish, you know. It's probably one of the reasons why I'm able to remain sane in South Africa. My Irish genes kind of like, look at this as, what do you mean? This is the old normal. <laughs> I hope things change in actual fact, I must admit uh, to. Um, <sighs> yeah, well, uh, President Sul Ramaphosa imposing a curfew from Sunday. Um, you know, it's like uh, the, the, the updates in all of these. Um, we're, going, we're going to go, we're going to level three, and, uh, but the level three is worse than level four, and level four is worse than level five. And, you know, level one is supposed to be the easiest. I'd hate to know what's lying ahead of us in level two. We probably have to go and have Nkuzazana Lamini Zuma personal inspections, uh, late night raids to make sure you don't have any cigarettes in your house. Well, it's, it's nice to see that at least the president of the country has made clear to us that, well, you know, um, uh, you're allowed to drink alcohol in your yard. It would have been a good thing to have said that to um, the man from uh, Alex who was killed by the soldiers right at the beginning of the, uh, right at the beginning of the lockdown while he's having a bry in his yard. Can you believe it? They say you can get drunk in your yard, according to the president. Um, I'm sure that most of South Africa's alcoholics have, uh, have in actual fact, stocked up already. They've probably gone and bought a whole emergency reserve. Uh, um, 
But the thing about, uh, you know, banning alcohol is that uh, you want to ban the alcohol because the alcohol is filling up the casualty wards. The alcohol is filling up the casualty wards. And, uh, you know, alhamdulillah for the lockdown and alhamdulillah for this uh, second alcohol ban. Um, because one thing that it is showing is the deleterious effects that alcohol has on society. You know, our government likes to pretend that it uh, protects um, women's rights, but, oh boy, you know, you sell alcohol and you just watch the rape figures shoot up. Well, look, maybe that's been a bit harsh. Maybe they are trying to protect women's rights. But, you know, it's a, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a sh- spitting against the wind. That's what's happening. It's spitting against the wind. You know, uh, one of the main reasons uh, why we have the whole kind of like gender debate in South Africa is because uh, it's a sign of um, um, a decay of personal identity and uh, an invitation for us to move on to the impersonal uh, sphere of the mass you know oh we're all men we're all in this together oh we are not all in this together believe me we're not all in this together the fixation with gender and all of these kind of issues you know identity politics you know, uh, as soon as you give up your family identity, and by a family identity, I mean extended family identity. As soon as you give up your busy, when you give up the extended family, it's not going to be very long because before your nuclear family starts disintegrating. I mean, you know, because you need to keep those tides. You need to keep yourself latched in, anchored to uh, the greater part of your identity, you know. Brothers and sisters must stick together their entire lives, support each other. And, uh, you know, that way, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't become uh, a faceless man or a faceless woman or a faceless consumer uh, or a faceless voter. You know, you remain who you are. Faisal Tawheed. That is me. That's my name. Faisal Tawheed. I don't mean Templeton. Well, I've changed my name, of course. Reverted to Islam in 2000. I've always wondered, you know, I could spend a whole week in actual fact. I could, I could spend a whole week telling my story of how I became a Muslim. Um, and I kind of wondered to myself, maybe I should in actual fact do it. Because it's, so it's a, well, you know, um, journalists, of course, uh, n- n- narcissistic journalists, uh, you know, got a mirror in one hand and um, a critic on the other, uh, a self-indulgence. I want to talk about me, yes. Well, in fact, no, my, no, I must admit my journalism career is very, very thin on me. Um, in fact, uh, one of the, 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 the fourth rule of journalism that I devised, I devised a whole list of journalism, rules of journalism. Um, uh the, the the third rule of journalism is if you can't do journalism, pretend everyone else is. Uh, and the fourth rule of journalism is your story is the most important story of your life. You see, the thing about journalism, if you become a journalist, is uh, the stories you're chasing are almost always more interesting than what's happening in your life. You know, 
and uh, when you when you really commit yourself to to you know getting the story, digging it out, winkling it out, getting all sides and all that kind of thing. Your own story starts fading into the background until, like, you know, after a few decades, it's, you know, you're 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 just a face in the mirror. Yeah, you need to you you need to maintain your identity and uh, re-establish your family ties all the time. Nabi Karim sallallahu alaihi used to say that you know you're breaking your broken your family ties with close family members um, if you haven't seen him for more than three days. Yeah, and actually, you know, we're supposed to be seeing our brothers and sisters on a on a regular basis, our children and our cousins and our nieces and our nephews. These things need to be built and maintained. And uh, the only way in which class formation happens in any modern society is um, through people breaking their extended family ties. You know, both Marxism and capitalism presume the emergence of class you know, a great big mass of identityless people who uh, who coalesce and come together because of perceived uh, shared interests. You know, well, we are all workers on the shop floor. You know, material interests are uh, forming our consciousness. And of course, uh, Islam does point out that your environment is um, critical. Uh, to your iman, so you know it's not it's not a new idea to Islam. Empiricism also not a new idea to Islam. You must uh, test before you can. You must prove a fact before you can believe in it, according to science. Well, Allah Taala says in the Quran, if you're in doubt of something, go out and investigate it. Now, investigate. It's imperative of the Quran. You know. All Muslims are, are ordered by the Quran to be scientists. In fact, you know what, I would argue it's impossible to be a scientist if you're not a Muslim. Hmm? Yes, yeah, it's impossible to be a scientist if you're not a Muslim. Because you see, uh, to be as objective as you can be, you need to throw away prejudices and... Um, hang-ups, and phobias and fears. Emotional baggage doesn't belong in science, we're told. Well, you know, the best way to discard all of your emotional baggage and your prejudices is to say, La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. There is no God but Allah. Allah. The Arabic word for God it means the one who is praised. We go and look up an English dictionary, it'll tell you God. Go look up God. God. The one who is praised. In English, in Arabic, the one who is praised. Yeah, so you know, um, you need to return to that organic self. That being who you were in the, in the womb. You must be reborn. Uh, Christianity also teaches, uh, says you must be reborn. Uh, but, uh, well, they've got a, a very illogical and uh, definitely not methodical way of going about being reborn. Apparently, for uh, the Christians uh, to be reborn, you need a bishop to come and put his hands on your head. Um, and the Holy Spirit to enter you. Um well, uh, for, 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 for other ordinary people, 
you know, I can remember at the age of 16, uh, soft, pudgy hands of a bishop being pushed and put on my head, and I'm looking around the church, and I'm thinking, this isn't working. This isn't working. I'm sorry. This is just a lot of nonsense. Um, yeah, a few days previously, I'd um, had a very interesting conversation in our class. Uh, I've been told for the first time that Jesus doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that he's God. It's the people who came after him who say so. So I was very intrigued by that. You know, I paid attention, but I'd never methodically gone through the whole Bible. Anyway, let's not get uh, let's not get into these issues. Um, maybe one day I will. I'll tell my full story of my how how I reverted. Essentially, you know, the the the, the story is uh, divided into decades. Um, from the age of uh, five and a half, six onwards, um, I've been presented with a major challenge. I've been presented with a major challenge. The, these Christians are idolaters, I've been told. Hmm? They say that Jesus is God. They worship Jesus. I said, I don't worship Jesus. I only worship God. I said that as a five and a half year old one day. And I was most perturbed by this claim. And I'll tell you what, so if I ever get into the story, you'll be even more astounded by who I say told me that. But anyway, 10 years later, I'm 16 years old, and I'm again presented with the same challenge. And again, you know, the test says, no, this is idolatry. 10 years later again, I'm working as a journalist in Kimberley. And... Uh, I uh, went and interviewed some some Hindus from the Kimberley community, working for the Diamond Fields Advertiser as a cub reporter. I've been seconded there for six months by the Star newspaper, all owned by the same newspaper group, the Argus at that time. And uh, suddenly, well, so when uh, I was a Christian, or well, thought I was a Christian at that stage, and I went and um, <clears throat> I wrote a story about some holy man from India came and visited the Hindu community, some Swami. And uh, there's a photograph there. So next thing I know, I'm uh, the, the Muslim community in Kimberley. What? Well, you're putting the Hindus in. What about us Muslims? Uh, you can't discriminate. So I uh, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, there's a big sheikh had come to visit the the, the Kimberley Muslim Ummah. And uh, I, I told them that I only worshipped God. I didn't worship Jesus. I didn't believe Jesus was God. And they got me to recite the first half of the kalima. La ilaha illallah. But I didn't want to say Muhammad Rasulullah. Because I said I don't know anything about him. You know. Uh, and uh, that was when I decided. Ten years. Uh, I decided, you know what? One day I must read the Quran. Of course, you know, that's a problem with insan. You say one day and one day turns into never. You know. One day is one day, but two day is two day. One day is one day, but two day is two day. If you want to get something done, today is the best time to do it. It's the only time to do anything. It's the only time anything can be done, today. One day is one day, but two day is two day. Yeah. So, yeah, so one day is one day turned into uh, one year is ten years. And a decade later again, at the age of 36, I find myself um, looking at a sticker at a fast food takeaway on the counter of a fast food takeaway saying, read the Quran daily. And I remembered, you know what? Ten years ago, I, I said to myself, I should read the Quran one day, and I still haven't. So I decided I needed to get my hands on the Quran. 
And when I did eventually open up the Quran, all I needed to do was uh, read Surah Fatiha in English. That was all it took. I, I kind of wonder myself sometimes what would have happened when I was 26 years old uh, in 1990. If uh, if the Cheikh said, you all need to know about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Okay, here, read this Quran, English, read the translation. I wonder if I'd open up and Surah Fatiha and I'd fallen out for the first time. Would that effect have been the same? Hmm? Would I have to close the book right there and say, that's it, yes, I'm a Muslim. Like I did when I was 36. Uh, I wonder how different my life would have been if I had recited that kalima as a younger man. Imagine if I'd have recited it at the age of six. Hmm. Yeah, you know, we delay. And only late in life we do, do we regret these delays. It worries me sometimes, you know, Allah Ta'ala refers repeatedly to Lut, Salam's wife, the one who, um, who, who tarried behind. She was the one, she was one of, she was of those who always tarried who always was a little bit late. Just been a little bit late. And look what happened to her as Lut and his family were leaving the city. Um, his wife stayed behind a little and boop, she was lost. How many times have we tarried and delayed a little? Hmm? Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa you know, we do regular time with my wife last night. It was, it was uh, Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa exhortations on the need on the need to spend sadaqah now. Now. Go, go and spend your sadaqah now while you can. Don't wait. Don't wait. Sekum jalo kanago, Baba. Now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time. You know? Live in the now. Shaitan is always trying to get us to live in tomorrow or live in yesterday. You know? He's always plaguing us with disappointments. When we put our head to our forehead uh, after Salah, we, we say to Allah, Oh Allah, seek refuge in thee from disappointment and anxiety. That's a prayer to Allah to, to make us live in the now. Today, now. Because you see, disappointment refers to the past. You can't be disappointed about the future because it hasn't happened yet. And anxiety refers to the unknown future. So, that dua is instructing us that we need to live today. Because there's no other way to live. There's no other way to live. You must live now. Well, I don't feel like breathing right now. I think I'll breathe tomorrow. Okay, good luck with that. Yeah, you need to do things now. Go and tell your loved ones you love them. Go and sort out the messes in your family. Do them and do them now. And may my ears that are the closest to my mouth be the first to hear my words. Well, we're going to have to go. You are listening to Marquez Sahaba, the voice of Ahl Sunnah. Assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Twelve minutes past four. On a bracing Wednesday afternoon. Yes, definitely. It's one of those days where uh, when you're awake, you're awake. And you know it because your toes are freezing. Uh, well, you know, it's uh, it's feast of famine here at Marka Sahaba. You, you sit in the newsroom and it's like, oh, it's lovely and warm. There's heat is going. There's air conditioning. Uh, and in the, new, in the studio, well, there's also air conditioning. But it's got to, you know, we've got to look after the uh, equipment. 
This is a place where we, we care for more for the dead than the living. Um, because we see where you, you sit in this, um, you sit in the studio and, uh, you know, everything has to be kept cool. Uh, you know, when something needs to be kept cool in the middle of winter and then you've got to sit in the midst of it. Oh, yes. Well, anyway, I've, I've, got, I've got two socks and a really, uh, the, the, the thickest jersey I've ever had in my life. So there's no complaints here. There's no complaints here. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, you know, got a job, um, close to home, uh, pleasant working environment, and very nice colleagues. Hmm? Who could complain having Mufti AK as a colleague? Uh, so, yeah, a very nice environment. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. May Allah Ta'ala bless Marka Sahaba and uh, take us from strength to strength. And keep us going for a very, 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 very long time. Until Qiyamah. Why not? Why not? The foremost Muslim radio station in the world. If you've tuned in, congratulations on your taste in broadcasting. Well, Health Minister's William Kesey last night was telling us that we need to learn to coexist with COVID. And I was glad they didn't say we must, we must just live with it because, of course, many of us are just going to die with it. Uh, so, uh, you know, you couldn't say just live with it. Um, so he said you've got to coexist with it. Coexist with COVID. Yeah, well, in actual fact, that's what we should be doing. I reckon um, we should have followed herd immunity. Um, uh, do something like Sweden has done. Uh, protect the uh, protect the uh, the elderly, and uh, go on with life as normal and and care for each other. I'm I'm denying the efficacy of the lockdown, and in fact, I'm also denying the efficacy of uh, the medical interventions that they're using, the intubation and the and the um, the breathing machines, the ventilators. Not working, got an appalling um, um, performance, you know, 50% death rate when you put on two uh, ventilators. So ventilators clearly aren't working. But nevertheless, the World Health Organization, the South African government, Bill Gates uh, and Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, are adamant that we must stick with it. Why don't they want to entertain any other ways of going about it? 50% death rate when you're on a ventilator. Who wants to go to hospital and die like that? Now we've been told, yeah, there's too many people at the funerals and too many people before and after. You must stop crying. I'd like to have punched him in the mouth the, the day he said on television, yeah, you mustn't kiss your wife. Who are you to come and tell me I mustn't kiss my wife? Huh? You can pretend to be a policeman. I'm not going to pretend to be a husband. You mustn't kiss your wife. Footsteps, man. Give me freedom or give me death. Like a child, I like No, he's no, he's no relative of our non-cooperative governance minister. <laughs> he's laughing his head off there. <laughs> All right, everyone's laughing. Well, well, still, you know, who's begging clearly to come and tell me? No, 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 no. They, they, they telling us you mustn't cry. Eish, you know, um, ah, you know, thing is, people are too poor to give a damn sometimes in many places. Many people in this country are too poor to give a damn. And they don't have any choice but to coexist with COVID. Thank you, Zwerdiam Kize. You know, because they live in shacks. 
They live in uh, apartheid housing, like a house that I live in. I moved into uh, the two rooms in Lenasia. You know the the original train houses. You know they're all joined together like a, like um, train carriages, um, walls so thin. You, I, I actually suspect I could kick down the walls in my house if I wanted to. If I if, if I really put my mind to it, I reckon I could just with my one foot kick down most of the walls inside my house. Uh, we were we were putting tiles on the wall a few years back, and um, a whole lot of like mine dump sand. They built some of the houses with mine dump sand. Can you believe it? Mine dump sand came uh, trickling out of the wall. We were we were, we were wanting to put uh, put the pipes into the wall, so we started you know chiseling away, making a channel for the pipe to fit into, and bonk. Oh, <laughs> the chisel went right through the wall. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, you know, when you live in small little houses like that, small cramped little rooms, you know, I'm six foot one, and um, the, uh, the the ceiling in the kitchen is uh, at seven foot. So, you know, in wintertime, it really, really turns into an oven. It's something you can really tell if you're six foot and you've got a seven foot roof, if you've got a five foot wife. Um, the wife, the wife doesn't notice that uh, there is a a layer, a blanket of air, about one foot deep that like kind of like collects uh, just below the ceiling, and when you walk around uh, your six foot height, it's like whoa. Uh, and I'm looking at my wife; she doesn't even notice. So, um, but then again, you know, she's been living with the fall like almost her entire life. Um, yeah. Well, there are many other issues going on in the world, and we actually have a lot uh, lined up for you for this program. And as usual, I'm probably not going to get through all of it because I tend to talk too much. Um, Okay. Uh, One of the most important ones I felt today that I really had to share with you is a a letter by Asadullah Harun. Asadullah Harun. He's written a very important letter, and it needs to be given it needs to be given publicity. This is what uh, Asadullah Harun has to say. He says, I am an expert hunger striker now. I have been going for almost nine weeks and have lost 30 pounds. I now weigh 115 pounds. I checked this morning. The first three days were hard, but after that my stomach shrank and I was no longer hungry. I drink water because otherwise I would soon die. But I'm not feeling thirsty. I am feeling very weak though. The new senior medical officer is a decent guy. He comes by to check on me and he says he's sympathetic. He asks if I'm going to harm myself or anyone else. I say, no, I'm just a peaceful protester. Give me freedom or give me death. This principle is very important to me. I don't just want to sit patiently in my cell until I die here. I do not want to die here at all, but I have to do something. I thought of a phrase I learned in English, it's a dog-eat-dog world. For now, I am a cannibal, because my body is eating itself. It has nowhere else to go for nutrition. They still bring me the food at every meal. I ask the gods not to, but they insist that they are under orders to offer me something to eat, so they just leave it there. It is quite torturous, although I have no appetite now. I find myself slipping away. My immune system is sinking slowly. When I lie down, it is hard to stand up. I have trouble focusing. 
My memory is bad. I forget the names of my family and close, close friends. I've forgotten parts of the Holy Quran that I had memorized. When I pray, I find that I cannot remember my prayers. If I try to send a letter to my family, I find myself writing the same sentence over and over. They are very important to me and I am desperately worried about them. Afghanistan is a poor country without the resources to fight COVID-19 and they live in a crowded refugee camp. I want nothing more than to put food on the table and share it with them. I have nightmares. They repeat and repeat. I'm in a very dirty area. I try to avoid stepping barefoot in feces, although it turns out to be a landmine. Sometimes there are snakes and I must find a path through them. I wake up suddenly feeling cold with my heart beating very fast. Maybe they will start force feeding me if I go under 110 pounds. They did it to me in 2013. They force you to take a liquid nutrient. The nicer gods allow you to drink it in front of them, but normally they put a 110 centimeter pipe up your nose. It is very painful. As it goes in, you feel you must throw up and become desperate to take it out. It is more painful to me than when I was thrown out of the bus and my bones were broken. And this is every day. It can take an hour and a half, but they cheat and do it quicker, which is actually more painful. All this time you're sitting in the torture chair, strapped down tightly. One day a woman tried to put it in and couldn't. She tried for five or ten minutes. She just didn't know what she was doing. It was excruciating. I am prepared to die, if it comes to it. I look ahead and all I see is suffering. But what is the point of good health in life if I cannot be at home? My daughter was three months old when I last saw her. She is now 13. Growing up without a father in a refugee camp where school has been closed for five months now because of the virus. If I was there, I could help to teach her. I could even teach her the English I've learned here in Guantanamo. I'm not hunger-striking to make the military administration unhappy. After 13 years detained without trial, it is the only form of protest left to me. The only way to assert my humanity is to die. Guantanamo strips us of every human right but the right to life. Perhaps, as my life ebbs away, the U.S. will at least be confronted with the pointless cruelty of keeping me here. Asadul Haroun is an Afghan citizen detained at the offshore U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, without charge or trial since 2007. Well, you know, it's not only in Afghanistan where the U.S. has been misbehaving recently. It's also waging multiple fronts of war against Syria, including brutal, brutal sanctions, while claiming concern over the well-being of Syrian civilians, the vast majority of whom are suffering as a direct result of U.S. policies. On June 17, the U.S. implemented the Caesar Act, America's latest round of draconian sanctions against the Syrian people, to protect them, we are told. This, after years of bombing civilians and providing support to anti-government militants, leading to the proliferation of terrorists who kidnap, imprison, torture, torture, maim, and murder the same Syrian civilians. Just weeks after these barbaric sanctions were enforced, cue American crocodile tears about Syrian suffering and claims that Moscow and Damascus are allegedly preventing the delivery of humanitarian aid. 
more hot air from American hypocritical talking heads who don't actually care about Syrian well-being. American trigger happily sanctions many nations or entities that dare to stand up to its hegemonic dictates. The word sanction sounds too soft. The reality is an all-out economic war against the people in targeted nations. Genocide is a better word. Americans should say we are going to implement genocide against such and such a country, rather than sanctions. Sanctions have, I wrote last December, impacted Syria's ability to import medicines or the raw materials needed to manufacture them. Medical equipment, machines, materials needed to manufacture prosthetic limbs, among other things, are not available in Syria today. Syria reports that the latest sanctions are already preventing civilians from acquiring imported drugs, especially antibiotics, as some companies have withdrawn their license granted to drug factories due to the sanctions. In Damascus, pharmacies I've stepped into where I ask what some of the most sought-after medications are. Hypertension medications are at the top, depression. But sanctions have yet another brutal effect. They wreak havoc on the economy. The destruction of Syria's economy is something U.S. envoy for Syria, James Jeffrey, boasted about, reportedly saying that the sanctions contributed to the collapse of the value of the Syrian pound. Um, the website Sanctions Kill Notes says, Currencies are devalued and inflated when sanctions are levied. Countries are pressured to stop doing business with targeted countries. Sanctions violate international law, the UN Charter, Geneva and Nuremberg Conventions. Because they target civilians by economic strangulation, creating famines, life-threatening shortages and economic chaos. So, you have Western hypocritical talking heads pretending they want to get aid to Syrian civilians while literally cutting them off from medicine and the ability to purchase food. I wasn't sure. I thought they were going to say while literally cutting off their heads. Them. I thought they meant their heads. Yeah, no. Same thing is also happening. But these crimes against humanity don't suffice for America. The U.S. occupation troops and the Kurdish proxy forces, the so-called SDF, the Syrian Defense Forces or some Democratic Forces, paid by France, of course, just imported from Libya, uh, and are being imported back into Libya, are plundering Syria's oil resources to the tune of $30 million a month as of last October, according to Russian military estimates. Um, in early July, another convoy leaving Syria to Iraq, loaded with oil, thief from areas under U.S. occupation, was also identified. Terrorists and U.S. proxy groups are stealing Syria's cotton, olives, wheat and flour. Syria accuses the U.S. of deliberately setting fire to crops using Apache-dropped thermal balloons. Civilians from affected areas near Turkish occupation posts likewise blame Turkish forces for setting fire and firing live ammunition upon those who attempt to extinguish the fires. Farmers literally watching their livelihoods go up in flames. Asaka Agricultural Director Director likewise blames Turkey for arson of the crops. Well, you see, Turkey has been um, the plaything of the West for how many centuries now? For at least three centuries, the Turks have been uh, the joke of the West. They're like a little toy, you know, has been running from the French and then to the, then to the British, then to the Russians, then to the Americans, just like it's doing today. You know, and it's, of course, while it's doing so, it's dreaming of empire and becoming the great big Ottoman Empire that it once was. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you when you uh, make friends of the kuffar. 
Yeah, you, you end up burning Muslims' wheat fields because you're part of NATO and it's like the common strategy, you know. Turkey's occupation forces are also accused of cutting water supplies at Aluk water pump station, depriving one million people in the Saka region of drinking and agricultural water with no condemnation from the Security Council. The poverty and suffering Syrians are enduring these days is unbearable, with prices of basic goods doubled and tripled from just a few months ago, turning what were profitable items into luxuries, particularly for the 7.9 million food-insecure Syrians. But alarmist Western media and representatives omit the context. The nearly 10 years of war on Syria, the deliberate targeting by terrorists and by the U.S. and Turkish occupation forces and Israel of Syria's infrastructure, the looting of oil, wheat and cotton, even allegedly steaming parts of the Idlib power plant for scrap sale in Turkey. Likewise, Aleppo's heavy industry was thieved during the years when terrorists occupied the industrial zones. Heavy machinery was trucked in broad daylight to Turkey. With all these factors, of course, there is poverty and a chaotic economy. Recently, the United States Security Council passed a resolution to maintain one humanitarian border crossing from Turkey into Syria, the Bab al-Hawa crossing. Prior to that, Russia had proposed a resolution enabling the safe delivery of humanitarian aid from within Syria. On July 11, Russia's permanent mission to the UN issued a statement, again noting the need to phase out cross-border deliveries, as the Syrian government had regained much of the territories previously occupied by the terrorists, and deliveries can be made from within Syria. The UN security resolution that was passed, however, continues the delivery of aid via Turkey delivering uh, to the hands of Al-Qaeda and other groups uh, occupying Idlib. It is with these people the U.S. aid ends up when delivered from Turkey, not from Syrian territory. Given that the U.S. has supplied weapons to anti-government extremists in Syria before, it is not illogical to believe they hope to funnel still more weapons under the pretext of aid deliveries. Russia's statement also noted the lack of U.N. presence in Idlib. It's not a secret, said Russia, that the terrorist groups listed as such by the UN Security Council control certain areas of the escalation zone and use the US humanitarian aid as a tool to exert pressure on civilian population and openly make profit from such deliveries. This is what Russia and China opposed, not the delivery of aid. These are the details which US Ambassador Kelly Craft slyly omitted when she spoke of callousness and dishonesty being an established pattern. Her verbal guns were aimed at Syria and Russia, but a choice of words perfectly describes U.S. policy towards Syrians. One needs only to look at U.S. policy towards displaced Syrians in Rukban camp to see that the U.S. has actively worked to prevent aid deliveries there and prevent Syrians from being evacuated from there, or the lack of U.S. outcry at Turkey's prevention of humanitarian convoy avoids from reaching Idlib, while which, while scheduled for last April, still haven't been successful. On the other hand, on July 4, the World Health Organization acknowledged the Russian delivery of 85 tons of medicine. I wonder how many tons of actual aid the U.S. would send. In case it isn't clear, America is weaponizing and politicizing aid, as it tried to do in Venezuela last year. American representatives Posture and Bello and Russia and Syria quietly go about actually delivering the aid. Now, if, a re- if America truly wanted to alleviate the suffering of Syrians, because now they're speaking of aid to Syria, all sanctions against the country and people would be immediately lifted. How can, how can you send aid to a country while at the same time implementing sanctions against it? 
going to go for a quick commercial break. And when we come back, a lot more, especially Cecil John Rhodes has also lost his head. You are listening to Merkaz Sahaba, the voice of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, well, as we said just there before the break, Cecil John Rhodes has lost his head. Yes, that uh, it's Cecil John Rhodes, the Rhodes Memorial up there. I've never visited it. But it's that one, it's like uh, the head and shoulders bust, where he's sort of leaning on one side with his head on his palm, his chin on his palm. Well, the head is gone. Someone has come along and taken the head of Cecil John Rhodes. I reckon it's King Hintz's relatives. Huh? Don't you think maybe it's King Hintz's relatives who've gone and stolen Cecil John Rhodes's head? They're going to hold it, going to hold it hostage until Britain returned King Hintz's head. Hmm? I remember a few years ago, guys went across to England to go and try and find King Hintz's head. One of um, one of the African chiefs here in South Africa, I think it was Sisi Tulsa. Uh, who had his head cut off and it was taken off, uh, you know, as a scientific um, exhibit back to England. Yeah, the British and the French have always had this in this tradition of chopping off their enemies' heads. Uh, anytime, anytime in Africa where people are chopping off hands and feet and heads, then you know it's British and French intelligence is behind it. That's it. That's my number one presumption. When I hear about heads and hands and feet being chopped off amid acts of terror, this British and French intelligence's hand is in there. So now Cecil John Rhodes has lost his head, and we're wondering if there's going to be a ransom. Hmm? So you reckon, send us King Hintz's head and you'll get the Cecil's head back. Well, according to Ray Takuli, my former colleague, hmm, uh, the head of communications at Sand Parks. He says the head of the statue is cut from the bust in what seems to be by with what seems to be an angle grinder somewhere between Sunday night or the early hours of Monday morning. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I actually dislike vandalism. I really, really do uh, dislike vandalism. I, I, I want to beat up vandals. I do. I, I want to beat up the vandals. Um... But uh, statue vandalism, well, you know, it's against the law and so on, and we must obey the law. Uh, but, well, you know, you, you, they, you always have opinion on these things. You know, if, if I had been those vandals and I had gone to remove Cecil John's head, I would have taken a sledgehammer with me and I would have smashed it. I would have pulverized it and left it smashed, squished beyond recognition, still on the statue as a statement. That's how I would have done it. Um, uh, I, I have no liking for statues, uh, but uh, I must admit that there is one other statue that I would like to deface. There is one other statue I would like to deface. And that's probably why I'll never get a green card. Uh, and, uh, it's a statue, I think it's at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. Um, it uh, also has... Um, uh, the statues of all the Hebrew prophets, and included among them is Nabi Karim, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, of course, they're just made-up likenesses, but I would like to go and smash that uh, that uh, that statue's head off. I'd like to smash that statue's head off. 
Yeah, because that's an insult to Nabi Kareem, sallallahu alayhi wa Yeah, that is one other statue I'd like to break. I would. So if you're in America sometime, um, please, um, go, go, go visit Gettysburg, uh, site of one of the Civil War battles, and see if you can find a small little uh, Civil War hand grenade, or no, um, a cannonball, and then go and visit the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, throw that cannibal with all your might against the head of that statue. That's what I'd like to see done. I'd like to see that statue beheaded. Yeah, there's only one other statue in the world I'd like to see defaced, and that's the one at the Lincoln Memorial. Well, anyway, uh, Table Mountain uh, National Park senior section rangers on patrol of the area came across the incident on Monday, apparently, and a case of vandalism was opened with the police. Uh, police spokesperson Andre Trapp said the case was reported and is currently under investigation. Uh, the, the office can confirm a malicious damage to property case was reported on July 14 after it was discovered that Cecil John Rhodes statue at the Rhodes Memorial had been vandalized. The circumstances surrounding the matter are being investigated. No one has been arrested as yet. Recently, in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., a local group calling themselves the Black People's National Crisis Committee called for the removal of Anglo-Boer War General Louis Buerta's statue outside Parliament. Uh, committee convener Songhez Maziz said these monuments are an insult to black people who still have to deal with the material and psychological repercussions of the settler colonial conquest yes and I, I would support that I, I would agree in fact I'd like to see all statues removed including Nelson Mandela's statues and, and I hate statues but anyway it is repugnant to have racist statues uh, on parks and, you know, outside the Supreme Court. Uh, President Brandt's statue is over there. Or is it from Brandis? You know, you, you get a bit mixed up. I would like to see the statues removed from all public spaces. They are obscene, I think. Um, and uh, look at it. You, and uh, they, uh, people say, uh, you know, um, that there's no reconciliation in South Africa, and yet old uh, Louis Buerta's statue is still standing outside par- the parliamentary building. Hmm? Isn't that a sign of reconciliation if you're ever going to find one? Um, there was a statue of Queen Victoria, oh, Queen Vic, uh, outside the Dublin post office. Uh, for years and years and years and years in Ireland. Now, the Dublin Post Office is a very special post office in in Irish history and Irish uh, consciousness because there in 1916, uh, um, a great big bunch of Irish rebels decided that they were going to uh, hijack the uh, Dublin Post Office and hopefully that would spur the rest of the country to an uprising. So, um, and many of the people who were in that post office, not many of them, some of the people in the post office actually ended up national leaders. Uh, so they were men of uh, character. Uh, and uh, they took over the post office, and of course, the British, in all bloody Britishness ways that they are, um, massacred them uh, and then uh, shot some of them, executed them. Uh, a few days later, one of them was executed sitting down in a chair because he'd been crippled in, in the fight. So the, uh, the, the the Dublin Post Office, you know, uh, and that was in 1916, right in the middle of the Second World War. 
as unfortunately you had British uh, warships in the harbour, and so they shelled the city. Hmm? And students from Trinity College actually helped put down the uprising. They were, they were, they were exchanging shots across St. Stephen's Green. Uh, if you're ever in Ireland and you find yourself at St. Stephen's Green, it's at the end of uh, Grafton Street. There's actually a Unitarian church on the border of St. Stephen's Green, I noticed as I walked around. It's uh, like a Christian church, but they, they say deny that Isa is, is God. Yeah, so... Uh, the, 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 the Irish uh, then were, of course, very upset when uh, the British insisted on erecting a statue of Queen Victoria out, right outside the post office, you know, really rubbing it in. You know, the British really know how to rub it in, just like they do today. And, uh, and so that quite horrible fat lady, huh? Well, I wonder if she's the one who's supposed to sing at the end, you know. Yeah, that horrible, big, fat lady. Oh, lady is perhaps a heroin addict. Yes, that big, fat heroin addict. Queen Victoria was a heroin addict. Good. Yeah, she tried to turn the whole of China into heroin addicts. Queen Victoria was a heroin addict. She was a junkie. Um, and so Britain, nevertheless, you know, because it's their junkie, they, uh, they, 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 they erected a huge big statue of the royal junkie outside the Irish post office. And there it squatted uh, until Irish independence. And so, of course, it was very quickly uh, removed. But, but, but in a very kind of Irish way, it was, it was created up. And uh, taken to a basement in the, in the bottom, the lowest floors of of the post office, and there it moulded, gathering dusts, until Australia decided. I can't remember what year it was that they wanted to celebrate their bicentennial. I think it was around about 1978. I think it was 19. And I mean, 1990. Actually, it could have been 93 around there. But anyway, Australia was uh, celebrating its bicentennial. And, you know, because the, the Australians, they're always trying to pretend that they're like South Africans. But, of course, they're not. They don't have spines. Uh, you know, they've got the British flag all over their own flag. They couldn't even, they couldn't even get the independence enough to um, concoct their own flag. Their own flag is just basically the Union Jack with uh, the Southern Cross on it. So, yeah, those uh, accursed Australians decided uh, that in all servile worship of their British masters, uh, they needed a really big statue of Queen Victoria to celebrate Britain's discovery of Australia. So they started looking around. Where can we find a nice big fat statue of that heroin junkie, Queen Victoria? We want one. We want to. We want uh, a monument to, to drug addiction uh, erected in Sydney, and we want a nice, big, fat, the biggest and fattest statue of Queen Victoria you can find. Well, they searched all over the world. Yes, yes, yes. You've guessed it. Where did they find it? They found it in the basement of the post office in Dublin. Well, you can well imagine. 
the, the, the astonishment on the faces of the Irish officials when the phone rang that day. They picked it up and they said, hello there. So, hello, Mike. Uh, this is Australia calling. Is that Ireland? Yes, that's right. Oh, I'll tell you what, Mike. We have an our bicentennial coming up in just a few days' time. We was hoping you'd be able to uh, ship us a, a big statue of a fat junkie. We want to put it up outside our houses of parliament. And uh, we thought, like, you know, the most royal junkie in the world uh, is Queen Victoria. And so to celebrate our bicentennial, uh, we were hoping that you could um, uh, ship us uh, that statue, if you could send us that statue. So you can imagine the Irish official now. Because now you've you, you got to understand something about the Irish and the Australians and the British. You see, when the Irish was having their troubles, you see, they, they just like Indians, didn't like British rule. Because, of course, it was savage and uncivilized. Uh, and so they fought against it, of course. And, of course, the British suppressed them and oppressed them in the most violent, brutal manners, as they did with Indians, uh, breaking up their families. And, of course, um, women, children, men who, uh, who dared to stand up against the British Empire were deemed criminals. And so what happened to them? They were put on ships and shipped off to Australia under Queen Victoria's rule. And here's an Australian on the other end of the line asking the official, so tell me, Mike, could you send us a statue? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll send it for free. <laughs> uh, the day that they put uh, Queen Victoria onto the ship in Dublin Harbour and it sailed out of the harbour, the whole of Ireland was drunk. Uh, there, there, there isn't any argument about it. Well, other than the Muslims in Galway, um, other than the Muslims in Galway and Dublin, Ireland, the whole of Ireland got drunk to celebrate. Queen Victoria had been put in a ship and sailed across the sea to Australia. Anyway, that's uh, musings. There you see, I told you. How am I going to get through all of this stuff when I just... All I needed to do was tell you that Cecil John Rhodes' statue has gone. We didn't have to get into that long, long, drawn-out diatribe about Queen Victoria, the foremost drug addict of the world. You see, that, that, that illustrates my point. I've said many times on the show that before an oppressor can oppress others, he must first oppress himself. You know? And so it is. Queen Victoria ended up a heroin addict trying to enforce the heroin trade onto the Chinese. The Boxer Rebellion in 1900-1901 was all about that. The heroin trade and the British right to sell heroin to the Chinese. Yeah, and called Queen Vic ended up a heroin addict, a junkie. Hmm? The foremost Briton, a junkie. Yeah, my kind of says to you, you know, when people come with history books and things. Well, anyway, they in Gauteng, the Fair Trade Tobacco Association, after failing in its bid to overturn the, the tobacco ban, is back at it again. Uh, they're back in the Gauteng High Court, um, the Pretoria High Court. I just call it the Pretoria High Court, like it's the Gauteng North and Gauteng South. It's Joburg High Court and uh, Pretoria High Court, that's it. 
Uh, Pretoria High Court has reserved judgment in the application by the Fair Trade Tobacco Association for leave to appeal against the earlier judgment which endorsed the government's ban on the sale of tobacco during lockdown. Feet asked for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal. They argued there were reasonable prospects uh, the Bloemfontein Court could find it could make a different finding. Uh, arguing on behalf of the association, their lawyer Arnold Stubel cited at least 10 grounds on which he claimed the court came to the wrong decision. Stubel said the issue was mainly whether cooperative governance, I call it uncooperative governance, Minister Mkazazana Lemini Zuma's decision to enforce the ban was rational, which he submitted was not. He said the matter is raised of enormous public interest and uh, it, emb- it, it embarks on uncharted legal issues. According to Stubel, not only the rights of smokers are at stake, but also the economic impact of the ban on the sale of tobacco products have on our country. He says these are compelling reasons why the appeal court should have another look at these issues. He added that while a similar matter is pending before Western Cape High Court next month on the 6th and 7th of August, it was due to have been heard like last month, but they and um, Judge Flope, who is now under suspension, uh, managed to like squeeze that little delay in, unexplained, depraved, as it is, uh, gave the government a six-week breathing space. Uh, Stubel, the lawyer for the smokers, added that while a similar matter is pending before the High Court, this is the first and only matter in which a court has given judgment on the issue. Thus, it's even more important that it be given a second glance by the Supreme Court, the Appeal Court. Um, He pointed out... um, that uh, it's not up to the Fair Trade Tobacco Association to convince the court that the court was wrong in its findings, but only that there may be a prospect that another court could find a different one. While the government's stance is that smokers will place a burden on the health resources needed to treat COVID-19 patients, Stubel said no credible evidence was submitted to prove this. He argued that the government had based their arguments on unsubstantiated health surveys and no link was proved that smokers would compromise the health system. Stubel said uh, this scientific evidence relied on by government to prove its point was inconclusive and of low quality. He said government can only place a ban on the sale of tobacco products if it can prove it is absolutely necessary to achieve the means of, it's necessary to achieve the means of not placing a burden on the health system. He said there's no credible scientific data to prove that smoking is placing a burden on the health system and preventing the treatment of COVID-19. He said, we believe that the appeal court will find the ban is not necessary to the objective of the means. Stubel said, apart from some people who raised an objection to the lifting of the ban, there was no justification for the minister not to have lifted the ban. He said it was an insensitive and callous approach by the minister to say that those who are addicted to nicotine should simply get over it. In opposing the application, advocate Maruma Moroane, Moroane, on behalf of the government, argued that the application was misconceived. He told the court that FIDA did not care so much about the smokers as it cared about their own pockets, which had been affected by the ban placed on the selling of tobacco products. He also said this matter did not concern novel legal issues which needed the attention of the appeal court, but rather the decision of the minister to promulgate the regulations, which she is entitled to do so. There is no need for the minister under the circumstances to prove that her decisions are fair, he said. She considered all the facts before she came to her decision, the fact that a substance is addictive does not make it essential, he said. 
Messi, the smokers wanted uh, uh, c- cigarettes to be deemed essential products because people are addicted to them. And unfortunately, you know, being a smoker myself, um, uh, but then this does underline the fact that I do have a few objective bones in my body. Um, It's become almost common knowledge that young people are less vulnerable to severe coronavirus infections. Adult U.S. adults from 18 to 49 make up around 25% of hospitalized coronavirus cases in March, whereas those 65 and older represented around 43%. Um, U.S. adults 18 to 44 years old made up just 2% of coronavirus deaths from February to May, while people of 65 and above represented nearly 80%. But certain factors that can put anyone at risk of serious illness regardless of age A new study from researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, determined that one in three young adults aged 18 to 25 are vulnerable to severe coronavirus cases. Patients were considered vulnerable if they had at least one risk factor, including a smoking habit or chronic illness like heart disease or diabetes. The researchers discovered that smoking was by far the most prevalent risk factor for people in their late teens and 20s. Of the roughly 8,400 young adults in the study, around 25% said they had smoked tobacco, e-cigarettes, or cigars in the last 30 days. By contrast, only about 16% reported having a chronic illness. Asthma was by far the most common. Around 9% of young adults reported that they were asthmatic. That's compared to around 12% who said they'd smoked tobacco in the last 30 days, and around 7% who said they'd used e-cigarettes. The risk of being medically vulnerable is halved when smokers, including e-cigarette users, are removed from the sample, the researchers wrote. Only about one in six young adults who didn't smoke were vulnerable to severe COVID-19 illnesses. The findings came just days after World Health Organization the World Health Organization, warned about the risk link between smoking and severe coronavirus cases. Smoking kills 8 million people a year, but if users need more motivation to kick their habit, the pandemic provides the right incentive, said uh, Gebreyesus. Evidence reveals that smokers are more vulnerable than non-smokers to developing a severe case of COVID-19, he said. It's funny, like, you know, a few weeks earlier, the World Health Organization said exactly the opposite. The University of California, San Francisco, uh, found that the risk of severe coronavirus infections from smoking or e-cigarette use was highest among young white males with lower incomes who are uninsured for at least part of the year. Research has shown that white people are more likely to be daily smokers compared to other racial groups, but people of color face another coronavirus, other coronavirus risk factors that weren't included in the study. Black and uh, Hispanic people, for instance, are more likely to hold service industry jobs that increase their risk of coronavirus exposure. The results may also be skewed by the fact that the study examined far more white adults than Hispanic or black adults. Around 16% of young adults who reported smoking in the study were men. Only 9% were women. But women in the study had higher rates of asthma and autoimmune conditions like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. On the whole, that mostly offset the fact that fewer women smoke. 30% of young women in the study were vulnerable to severe COVID-19 infections compared to 33% of young men. There's no big difference. Since the coronavirus attacks the respiratory system first, patients who already suffer from smoking-related lung damage or inflammation could develop more severe respiratory problems as a result of COVID-19. 
Research also suggests that smokers have higher expressions of ACE2 receptors, the cell receptors that the coronavirus uses to invade the body in their airwaves. People with more ACE2 receptors seem to have a higher risk of severe COVID-19 infection. But even young patients without a smoking habit or underlying health conditions could still be at risk of a severe case of COVID-19. People aged 18 to 29 make up more than four times as many coronavirus hospitalizations as they did a few months ago. Around 38 hospitalizations out of every 100,000 people as of July 4, compared to nine hospitalizations out of every 100,000 on April 18. Some young healthy patients have also reported feeling sick for several months with lasting symptoms like chest pain and shortness of breath. This could be genetic differences, but unlike most risk factors, smoking is one that can be prevented. Efforts to reduce smoking and e-cigarette use among adults would, more, would likely reduce their medical vulnerable, vulnerability to severe illness, the researchers wrote. Their findings, they added, underscore the importance of smoking prevention and mitigation. WhatsApp us on 084-786-3132. Assalamu alaikum. Well, yes, we've come into the tail end of the show, I'm afraid. Uh, That means we've got to start making um, plans, just like everyone else is uh, right now. Getting home, getting back to the loved ones. Ah, yes, well... I've, I've, I've always wondered, you know, what would what would happen if I as like you know I started my show. Hmm? Imagine if I started my show like most of you start your working day. Hmm? You know, you know when, when when the boss isn't watching. You know, you come and you'd, you'd sit down at your desk. You'd sort of look around and sort of wonder. Hmm, get a cup of coffee. Uh, get a you know. There's all those little other little things that you you uh, insist on doing before you actually settle down to work. I wonder what would happen if if, if I if I started my show like that. Uh, <laughs> Or, or, or ended my show off like that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's uh, for, for many of us. As soon as like uh, you know, the the, the second hand uh, hits hits the naught and it clocks over to five o'clock. There's like um, uh, that sound that you hear in Bollywood movies when um, you know their eyes lock. <laughs> I don't know, I found some strange, like, rushing wind sound, you know, it's like, he's out the door, and it's just, that's the end of the show, and he's gone, no, 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 we can't do that, that would be very rude indeed, so, well, I'm afraid, you know, being a talk show host, you have to uh, basically follow social etiquette, you know, because... If the boss isn't watching well, let me tell you what, there's like thousands of listeners out there. Like, and I'm by, at least half of them have got his home number. I know this. This I know. Um, anyway, for all of us, our boss is Allah Ta'ala. And Allah Ta'ala is seen all. He's seen all. So anyway, we've uh, got a smoking ban is back. The alcohol ban is back. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that the alcohol ban is back. Um, a ham-fisted way the government has gone about it, as usual, means that uh, its efficacy is probably going to be negligible. There's going to be people cheating and um, brewing alcohol and all those kinds of things are going to take off now. Because the government doesn't know how to get cooperation. 
Because She is a hard-headed, determined woman. She is a woman of force and character and strength. But of course, she's also very stupid. Uh, so as a result, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. She's just like my wife. Doesn't like being told. You know, that, uh, I tell you what, if, if I say, uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever told my wife she's stupid. But I've seen other people kind of like imply it. So I know, I know, I know that that is one word you don't use with my wife. And I know that Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma is exactly the same, which is why I use that word with her. Because she is. She's been stupid. You know, if this is how you um, enforce your beliefs, well, then your beliefs can't be very strong. You know, because if you wanted to enforce your beliefs, you would do it with sincerity, not with force. Not with determination, not with krachtdadigheid, soos apartheid. You do it with sincerity and compassion. And then you would get cooperation, old cooperative governance minister. Just goes to show you, can, you can get a doctorate and be pretty stupid. Pretty stupid people can get a doctorate too, you know. Yeah, just have a look at our non-cooperative governance minister. Nkothadana <laughs> Zuma. Hey, locked down for so long. According to white men's rules, just like apartheid, you know, white men's rules, you know, um, yeah, you must stay at home. You know, the white man rule. White man rule, you know, living in a shack, you must do social distancing. White man rule. You're getting into a crammed minibus taxi. Social distancing, white man rule. You know, these are rules that have been drawn up by white people for white people. And uh, we know from a long experience that when you implement these white people rules on other people, the other people are going to suffer. This is like Lamini Zuma. She must be one of the... Well, you know, I guess, you know, there are plenty of those square coins in uh, in the cabinet box, I can tell you that much. I mean, now, our president, I mean, look at our president. Huh? SAA turnaround champion. ESCOM turnaround champion. And look what happens, you make him the president. Same thing's going to happen. Same thing. Ah, well. Allah Ta'ala is in control of all things, and I make dua that we are not ruled by people who have no fear of Allah and who have no mercy. That's it. We've come to the end of the show. Hopefully our cooperative governance minister is one day going to learn. She could go she go look up the meaning of cooperation in the dictionary. If she was really sincere about her desire to stamp out smoking, she would go about in an effective way. And apartheid krachtdadigheid doesn't work in South Africa, Mr. Doctor, Mrs. Minister. It doesn't work in South Africa, so I don't know why you're trying it again. No, you need cooperation, cooperative governance minister. Try cooperation. Next time things aren't working out for you. That's my advice. Jazakumullah for joining us. I make dua that Allah Ta'ala protect you, your loved ones, and the entire Ummah, the entire world from this coronavirus. I make dua that uh, He give us increase in the good thereof and protect us from the evil. And I make dua that whatever trade and activity you get up to today is profitable and above all halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Allah,